This week, two companies went public, DoorDash and Airbnb. And they both almost perfectly symbolize this era of consumer tech. DoorDash is a food delivery business. Airbnb is a travel company. You probably know them well. Their debuts went off spectacularly. They both had massive stock pops, which, yes, meant they left money on the table. And all this sent their valuations soaring. What makes it so much more amazing is that not long ago, DoorDash's business was so up in the air, they had to raise money at awful terms. And Airbnb, at the beginning of the pandemic, had to desperately raise money at a lower valuation, while the travel industry essentially collapsed. So what changed between then and now? There are some fundamentals, secular changes, as the VCs like to say, but also, largely, hope. Which is a weird thing to have at this time, that many parts of the country are in a lockdown, a tragic number of people are dying every day, and the government can't even pass a stimulus bill. And yet these days, Wall Street is nothing but blue skies and high hopes. This is Tom Dotan, and on this episode of the Information's 411, I'm talking to Amir and Corey about why all of this does or doesn't make sense. In the second segment, I had a fun conversation with Peter Hamby of Snap. Peter is a journalist who works for the company. He hosts its popular politics and news show, Good Luck America. In our talk, Peter gives me his take on the debate over whether Facebook and Twitter are doing enough to root out false information, why Snapchat has been more aggressive than the rest on that front, and we talked about his recent interview with President Obama that made quite a few headlines. First off, though, it's me talking to Amir and Corey about DoorDash and Airbnb. So much to discuss on the markets these days, companies going public and having very, very strong, surprisingly strong debuts. And I feel like it says a lot about the markets, the tech world these days, the economy. So I brought in Amir and Corey to, to break it down. Um, Amir, I wanted to start with you and I want to get your quick reactions to why this has been such a big week for you and the companies and things that you care about. Uh, and the news this morning that Taylor Swift is going to be releasing a sister album to Folklore at midnight. Amir, I mean, do you think Taylor is not giving fans enough time to let Folklore breathe? Folklore is the best adult contemporary, you know, album uh, of the year and possibly possibly the, the decade. It's uh, it's incredible piece of work. M- more Taylor Swift for me, please. You just want something new. OK, so now let's talk about DoorDash. Um, so I, the story about DoorDash to me partly seems to be one of a company that really took off during the pandemic. They may have been on a good trajectory prior to that, but this has been kind of paradigm shifting for them. If you look at DoorDash, the one that went public last week, are they almost a different company than the one that existed, say, at some points in 2019? This pandemic has given companies like DoorDash a tremendous artificial boost. People are being exposed to these services, whether it's DoorDash for restaurant delivery, Instacart for grocery delivery, in some cases for the first time. Now, these services are luxuries. They're not cheap. And they were struggling for a while. And if you even if you look at their S1, and we know this from covering the sector years ago, they were struggling to raise money. They were struggling to get people to buy into the idea that there were efficiencies of scale in a restaurant delivery business. And the other, the other question was the cost of, of labor, the cost of paying delivery drivers to do this work. And that became a lot easier this year because ride hailing went off a cliff. All these people needed to do something. They went immediately to Instacart, DoorDash, and and Uber Eats, of course, as well, and, and others. So this was a confluence of events, and and this is a you know this proves that with greater scale, they can do better. But 
so many questions remain about the ability of this company to generate profits. Right. Well, that, that's going to be my question. I mean, do you feel like just because the company seems to have won the approval of investors and is seen as, as you know, it got their stamp of approval both in its IPO and the days subsequent, that the questions that you and I and everyone have had about whether this can be making money, whether the margins are good enough, have those been answered at all? This is a difficult, you know, marketplace to manage with us suppliers as restaurants and and this delivery workforce. These are difficult things today. Even today in Washington D.C., uh, I think that DoorDash was going to change its its model a bit in an effort to help their subscription service called Dash Pass, where you pay kind of a flat fee. And they got shut down by the regulators there. You know, this is you know just like with Uber, we've talked a lot about it. You know, you're dealing with regulators, you're dealing with the real world. It is messy as hell, right? We can say with supreme confidence that the current valuation that DoorDash has went up, to, I think, to past $60 billion. You know, that is not, that doesn't really make sense because that implies an ability to generate cash in the future, which is is tough. Uh, looks like the stock is is flat today, Thursday. But the last thing that I'll say is, you know, we have had a penchant for miscalculating the size of the markets that tech companies are in. But I think the bull case is these companies are tapping into a market that's going to be bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. They should be able to find a way to, let's say, generate cash from 4% of the total sales that they that they facilitate. And that's kind of the bet that's being made. But I, I think it's I think it's definitely too early. And I don't I don't care that it it sounds like, you know, in one of these situations, people kind of rush to the defense of the company and the valuation. It's like, oh, you're just trying to tear, tear them down. That's not it at all. Just use a reverse discounted cash flow model. Do the work and see what they need to generate in the future to make this stock price make any sense based on the valuation of companies in the public markets. It just doesn't make sense right now. So, Corey, I want to talk about Airbnb because in many senses, first of all, insane, just insane first day on the market. So I'll definitely want to get your reactions to that. But also, it's a different kind of company than DoorDash. It also was coming off such a horrible early stage of the pandemic. So let's just start off with uh, today and what transpired on the markets as, as Airbnb started trading. Yeah, I mean, it's been crazy. Right as it stands right now, the stock is trading between $145 and $150 a share, which implies a valuation of $100 billion, which uh, is a lot for a company that just as of April was valued at the depth of the pandemic at $17 billion. Um, so we're, we're, and it's also about 120% above where they priced the IPO. A lot of money on the table, uh, but I'm, I think people are still happy. What was the, I mean, with Amir and, and DoorDash, we sort of saw there was maybe an underestimating of the size of the market and, and their ability to create efficiencies through, you know, whatever technical or, or workforce means. What is it that Airbnb managed to do from April to now that caused it to go, you know, multiple times its value? Yeah, they've been able to sell the story to investors that the pandemic has created a moment that Airbnb can seize, even if they've seen two straight quarters of declining revenue. You know, um, they haven't seen the same tailwind necessarily as DoorDash has, that's very obvious. 
Um, fewer people are traveling full stop right now. But Airbnb has been able to sell the story that they'll be able to grab market share in the future from other online travel firms like Expedia, Booking Holdings, and hotel firms because the pandemic has introduced people to a new way of traveling. You know, driving distance uh, road trips to vacation rentals where you have a full house rather than just a hotel room. And, you know, they also, let's, let's be real, they cut costs a ton. They laid off a quarter of their staff. They stopped all marketing. I mean, this, the online travel business is in part a marketing business and they stopped all that and they've still outperformed their competitors. So, you know, that mixed together, that creates a really nice story um, uh, that people are, are buying uh, in spades. And Corey, is this kind of what we're seeing more broadly, which is the pandemic has shown us how much more efficient all businesses can be because they don't necessarily need an office or as many offices, they don't necessarily need business travel as much. They don't necessarily need to put on gigantic in-person conferences and so on. They don't need employees either, apparently. <laughs> I think so. Although, you know, I'll push back against that and say, at least in the online travel business, um, you know, demand has declined. And when demand kicks back up again, it's going, the competition among all these firms, which will all have a lot of cash, you know, just like we saw in the the, the great boom of 2010 to March 2019 or March 2020, all these, these firms were competing fiercely and looking for every little marginal point of market share. And next year when the vaccine is distributed, we'll see, you know, maybe, maybe all these companies can be more efficient, but they're all going to be sitting on a ton of cash. I want to cut in for a second here because these are actually two competing narratives that if you really think about it, don't make sense to me, or maybe it makes sense to you uh, because you're smarter about this than me. But in one sense, you have the Airbnb side, which is saying, Things will return back to normal in 2021. We're all going to be traveling again. And because we're a leaner structure, we are well set up to succeed. And then with DoorDash, you have the things are actually not going to return back to normal because we're all going to be ordering our food from restaurants and having more delivery people servicing our goods. So so which is it? Like, why, why is it that things will return back to normal as far as Airbnb goes, but they won't go back to normal as far as DoorDash goes? And the market's like, yep, yeah, I get it. Cool. So there is market expansion, if you will. I hate that term, but there's like this market expansion idea of like, oh, Airbnb is well known, but like now it's really, you know, a lot more well known. And over time, as it grows as a brand and as it grows as a public company, it'll get even more attention and more people will be like, oh, I can I can use this for that and that. So I, that's how I think you thread that needle. Yeah. And then also Airbnb, you know, I'll stop carrying water for them in a second, um, but they are not as exposed to some of the elements of travel that people think will take longer to recover, mainly thinking about um, air travel. Uh, they obviously don't have a flights business, whereas Expedia, one of their main competitors, does. Um, that said, you know, I do think investors are underestimating how concentrated Airbnb's business has been in big cities and urban markets. It's been the vast, vast, vast majority of their business historically, and I think still is today. And I don't know when you like how often you guys are planning to travel to New York City, you know, even next year. Uh, but, but I'm certainly not really. So, you know, I, I do think investors are potentially underestimating how, uh, exposed they are to some, some elements here that are going to take a while to recover. Look, there's obviously a lot more to talk about with these companies. Um, and 
today or the, these two, last two weeks, incredible debuts notwithstanding. It just seems like it's ratcheting up the drama of, of what's going to be playing out over the next year. So I look forward to talking about it with both of y'all. Um, thanks for joining. Let's talk everybody. about it in six months after the lockup ends. We'll see where we're at. All right. I'll mark it, mark it in our calendars. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Tom. Bye. All right, so I've got Peter Hamby from Snap on the line here. Peter is, of course, a journalist who hosts Snapchat's show, Good Luck America. So a lot of things I wanted to cover with you in this, but one of them is just starting off, you know, are your tweets. It's always fun to talk about people's tweets. And I, I followed you very closely, you know, in, on the election the days after, and I felt there was this kind of interesting phenomenon taking place where, if, you know, you follow people like you or Nate Silver or Nate Cohn or Dave Wasserman, you actually had a pretty clear idea of what was going to happen, you know, projection-wise in the remaining states that were still counting, versus like my parents, who, you know, they were watching CNN and MSNBC obsessively, and they legit thought it was like a toss-up. You know, is there sort of a significant gulf between the way people consume election results on Twitter and social media versus, you know, traditional television, and does it matter? Um, it does matter, and I think there is a gulf. Uh, if you watch cable news or election coverage, it is built in that they're there to build suspense. It's about eyeballs. It's like, I'm not like an old wise man, like, uh, you know, Curtis Wilkie or, you know, RW Apple or whatever, but this is the fourth presidential I've covered. And when I was just looking at the map, you know, you knew Joe Biden was going to outperform Hillary Clinton pretty much everywhere, except for some hardcore rural counties. And, you know, looking ahead at certain cities that we're about to report, you know, I was pretty confident about Wisconsin and Milwaukee. I was even talking about Georgia like a few days before they called it because the cities and the suburbs are breaking decisively to Democrats. Biden was outperforming Clinton. There's certain patterns here that are apparent. But again, yeah, I love watching elections on, on the Internet, on Twitter, um, on, you know, your second screen because the Internet has enabled just very smart reporters to have a voice. And like there used to be this sort of like you know, quote unquote, glass ceiling and TV news where, you know, only certain people had a voice. And now you can be a numbers nerd like Dave Wasserman. And, you know, you're more insightful than 90% of the pundits that you see on cable. Yeah. Well, but what's the outcome of that, you think? I mean, the, you know, obviously, there were votes being counted. So you can't just call it, you know, based purely on, you know, projections. Did the fact that it was sort of asynchronous when, you know, you could tell where things were going, on the you know on Twitter versus on television that kind of helped foment a lot of the frustrate or you know conspiracy theories and stop the steal and all the stuff that kind of came up and in, in we're still dealing with. You know that was my initial worry that in the in the vacuum of not calling the race when for probably forty eight hours it was clear where it was going that the networks were allowing conspiracy theories to fester. You know, at the same time, I think that Donald Trump and the RNC and, and Trump supporters were, would have spread the sort of stop the steal lies with or without the networks regardless. I mean, disinformation spreads, yes, in part, like, based on platforms, but like the sort of asymmetry of Republican politics versus Democratic politics in the Trump era has meant that like Trump will just say something and his supporters will believe it on any platform. And I think he was going to, he was already laying the groundwork for that 
going back to, you know, well, I mean, 2016, <laughs> when he said the election right. was going to be rigged, when he thought it was going to lose. Right. Well, so that's an interesting point, too, I want to like dive into, because, you know, this was the most aggressive you've seen from some of the social, I mean, you know, SNAP included, in terms of trying to at least label, if not root out disinformation from politicians, like you guys made the pretty aggressive move to just fully take out Trump's presence on uh, on SNAP because of continuance of misinformation. I mean, what do you think about the effectiveness of, let's just call the labeling, you know, discussion and, and you know, as Trump continues to basically have every single word out of his mouth labeled as, as misinformation or, 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 you know, disputed or whatever. I mean, is that serving any larger purpose or is this kind of strictly, you know, ass covering on the part of, you know, the, the big social media companies? Yeah, look, I want to give like Twitter a little more credit than some of the other platforms. Like I think they have made like efforts to um, flag disinformation, election lies. And I think they announced recently that they're going to reevaluate their whole like blue check mark thing, which is actually exciting because like <laughs> a lot of people out there have blue check marks probably shouldn't that were given them back in like 2013. Um, a lot of people that don't have them should, uh, by the way, me. So Twitter, um, Jack, if you're listening, give, give me it. <laughs> there should be some serious credentialing. I mean, like, but, you know, the bigger problem is just the stuff that's happening out of sight on Facebook and, and YouTube. What sort of stuff are you thinking about? You know, like I was reading an article about YouTube the other day and YouTube just insists on downranking things and not removing them. And I think the article said that, you know, when people search for news about the election, 88% of the top 10 search results are from authoritative news sources. Whatever that means, they are opaque about what authoritative news sources are. But man, that also means that 12% of search results are who knows what. And, you know, that that is just something that is dangerous. And like, I mean, not to be a homer, though, but like, that's one reason I'm, like, I'm proud to work at Snap. Like, I wouldn't have left CNN to go work at another platform. Like, Snap was like, we want to create a sort of safe and healthy news ecosystem. Like Evan told me that back in 2015, and I'm still here. There are a lot of people who simply don't live on Twitter, who don't watch cable news, who don't read the New York Times, um, and that doesn't make them dumb. It just makes them normal people who have their own lives and care about things other than politics. That's most people. Most people don't like politics. <laughs> when I think about my audience on Snapchat, it's mostly folks under 25. They are disconnected from traditional news sources. They're not watching CNN or reading the information or, you know, subscribing to the New York Times. From a content perspective, yeah, I want to cover things for the average American that are interesting and useful to them. But it's also important to, from a format perspective to present that in a way that's portable, that's entertaining. That's one reason podcasts like this are successful. You can listen to them whenever you want and people who people are talking <laughs> like normal humans on them and it's not a 10,000 word piece of text. Some of these formats were created 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Yeah. So my, so my last question here is going to be about Obama. So you, you did recently interview him. And one of the things that came out, like news, so to speak, uh, that came out of your interview was Obama's criticism of uh, defund the police First of all, do you think that the uh, kind of response and, and outrage, you know, was it a misinterpretation of what he was saying? And then do you think Obama, who was so good at kind of while he was running for office, then in office, 
understanding mediums, understanding the you know how to how to get across different mediums to reach people. Um, do you feel like he still understands that? Both of those are such good questions, and I could talk to you about them for hours. So, like on the second point, yes, I still think he's attuned in part because he has two daughters, Sasha and Malia. We interviewed him for my show in 2016, and I remember like we tried to get him to do like a Snapchat when we were filming, and we we're like, "Here's how it works," and he's like, "I got this," and he just took the phone and did like a selfie video. And the very reason he did this interview you know, in my conversations with Obama's team was you can reach an audience that is not watching his town hall on MSNBC. They're not watching Gail King. They're not watching Oprah. And his, you know, willingness to sit down and do an interview with me, but also not in a corny like Steve Buscemi, hello, fellow kids way. He just understands that consumers and audiences are and can be smart across platforms. And just because you're doing something on Snapchat, you don't have to say, I'm just chilling in Cedar Rapids. He can talk about activism. He can talk about, you know, exit polls. Like, he knows that young people are just as smart as older people. On your first question, um, that was really interesting because in the very same interview uh, that we're discussing, I asked Obama if he's worried that this younger generation is coming up and becoming politically sentient in, like, a social media age when the stuff that gets rewarded is not restraint, nuance, good faith coming together. It's likes, retweets, shares, outrage, emotion, attention, calling people out, canceling people, whatever. And he said he was worried. And he said when he was running for office in 2008, you know, they were adept at using the internet, but the platforms they were using were like MySpace and Meetup. And then they would take those people offline and, you know, be in Council Bluffs, Iowa and meet up in a coffee shop and like organize that way. And he said today people just try to score points on the Internet. Fast forward the same night, <laughs> The Hill sort of takes a Obama comment from my interview out of context saying that defund the police is just a snappy slogan, quote unquote, puts that on Twitter. And all of a sudden, like. The squad is dunking on him. Every Red Rose socialist on Twitter is attacking him. Uh, like Jezebel is attacking him. Like the predictable voices on Twitter were going nuts over Obama sort of urging caution about defund the police. The outrage around that comment sort of proved his point. It, it cuts both ways. Like maybe Obama is being too sober minded and cautious about the realities of the Internet. On the flip side, like maybe he understands that Twitter just doesn't matter and it's not quote unquote real life, you know, which is one of the operating MOs of the, um, the Biden campaign. One reason they won is they didn't listen to the very online voices and the voices of the very left. And they kept their eye on the sort of suburban voters who ended up swinging the election who aren't living on Twitter. All right, Peter, thanks so much uh, for doing this. We'll, we'll all be watching you on uh, Good Luck America. Cool, man. Thanks, Tom. That is today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Amir and Corey, thanks for stopping by. Peter Hamby, I enjoyed the chat. Thank you so much for joining. And of course, Ari Markowitz, appreciations go out to you for producing as always. Have a good weekend, everybody. See you back here next week.